What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Rolinda Speaks podcast. We're back with a brand new episode. Before we jump into part two of my conversation with Melina Phillips, DEIJ consultant and practitioner based out of Washington, D.C., I wanted to quickly shout out Dennis Ballard, our new member to the Patreon family. Welcome, Dennis, and thank you for supporting the podcast. All right, fam, so let's jump right into it. Last week, we began a conversation about Black women and our experiences of being both the shield and target in predominantly white spaces. And part two today continues that conversation juxtaposed with our recent vice presidential candidate debate that was late last week. Melina and I had a lot to say about it, so check it out. Following up on last week's conversation, I wanted to talk more about gaslighting. And in particular, we saw Mike Pence attempt to do this at the debate. Can you share with us your experience with gaslighting? And what did you think when you saw that strategy being used at the debate? That's a great question, Rolinda. And I'm so glad we finally have language um, in the tools to name the strategies of the oppressor. I know there is a wide spectrum of DEI knowledge amongst your listeners, and I want to ensure that we ground this conversation with a common definition of gaslighting. Gaslighting is a deliberate form of manipulation by which someone attempts to get a person to question their own reality memory of an event or perception to confuse them and or gain power. And attempting to gaslight will intentionally twist the other person's perceptions and make them feel like they're crazy. Racial gaslighting seeks to uphold systemic racism and brings race into the psychological manipulation piece and serves to invalidate the experiences and trauma of BIPOC. BIPOC is Black Indigenous People of Color. To be quite honest, as a Black and Puerto Rican woman, I have been gaslit more times than I care to recall. Within a professional setting, being gaslit for me looks like my supervisors and head of school asking me every single year without fail if I'm quote-unquote, ready to yet co-teach with the man who admitted to sexually harassing me. For me, gaslighting looks like the head of school reminding me that I was sexually harassed three years ago, and therefore she's completely confused about why I'm making such a, quote-unquote, big deal about the teacher who sexually harassed me having a leadership role over me now. The impact of gaslighting is something that deserves to be unpacked here. It is a form of abuse. If another person causes you to constantly question yourself, if they make you feel as though you are being too sensitive, If they invalidate your feelings and tell you that you're being unreasonable or crazy, 
This is a form of manipulation and abuse. Like many people who experience gaslighting, I thought I was going crazy at first. I began to question myself. I began to question my own perceptions of events, like what had happened versus what hadn't happened. And then I finally recognized it for what it was. Um, It was a form of manipulation. It was really trying and succeeding in stressing me out and making me question my own abilities. Senator Kamala Harris, as you know, is a member of my illustrious sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, and she is an extraordinary, experienced leader who, as I was watching the debate, I really saw her practice restraint. I really saw her have to hold back perhaps some comments that she wanted to make or comments that she knew were important. But because of the tropes and stereotypes that are held about Black women, in particular the trope of the angry Black woman, I could see how Kamala had to be so calculated in her response. And so I wanted to know, what did you think about that moment? And have you yourself found yourself in that moment of having to be calculated, be reserved, bite your tongue, hold what you want to say, because we can't ever show our emotion because of this stereotype. And so it's a different level of code switching um, that is our reality as Black women. And um, I wanted to get your thoughts, especially knowing that so many of the pundits who were talking about the debate really missed the mark on this of not understanding the nuanced experience that Black women have to endure each and every day um, as a mode of survival. So that's a great point. Again, we need to ground um, ourselves in the definition of code switching. Um, Plainly put, code switching is having a different communication style for each world one lives in. And it is born out of the necessity to appear or present as less threatening to or palatable to white people. So with that definition in mind, even before Harris was chosen to be Biden's running mate, people were counseling Biden that Harris was too ambitious, whatever that means, right? Like, how did being ambitious become a gendered characteristic? Does this only apply to women? In this instance, a black woman? I mean, again, we have the patriarchy and white supremacy to thank for this. The day that Joe Biden announced Harris as his running mate, the steady barrage of racism and sexism hurled at Harris began. And it really underscores the double standard black women face and illustrates what happens at the intersectionality of identity when you are an elected official. Some of these micro and macroaggressions 
hurled at her involved mispronouncing her name, suggesting that she wasn't born in the United States, and consequently just attempting to other her. This birtherism is the same strategy weaponized by the Trump administration or Trump, excuse me, during the Obama presidency. The double standard of likability that is mandatory of a woman candidate, especially a woman of color, is something that cannot be reconciled. It's important to appreciate and understand that being a leader means being able to speak truth to power. And it means having the ability to assert self-confidence. And Harris did just that throughout the debate. Kamala would not be a United States senator without ambition. Kamala would not have been the attorney general of California without ambition. You know, these words to describe her ambitious and phony They're just coded language used to create a negative image of her. And these insults, they're not substantive. They are not critiques based on her record, policy, or even her beliefs. During the debate, we all witnessed Harris walk the tightrope every Black woman walks in every single interview, presentation, Zoom call, meeting... Kamala Harris having to present as stereotypically feminine and as a likable leader without coming across as being aggressive, emasculating, or too smart. That is an impossible calculation. And yet she did it flawlessly. At the same time, she also can't be too feminine and conjure up the other racist trope of being the Jezebel which is a distinct misogynoir tactic. Harris has been unfoundedly accused of, you know, quote, having slept to the top. And respectability politics include code switching. And unfortunately, it is an overdeveloped muscle Black people have in order to garner employment, keep our jobs, and even stay alive in the face of daily indignities and routine injustice. It is how we appear more palatable to white fragility. And this is nothing short of mental gymnastics. And it is utterly exhausting and soul-sucking. The moderator of the debate uh, kept Kamala to time, but I saw her continually let Mike Pence have more than his fair share of time. And also what was a troubling moment was she kept thanking him. And I was thinking to myself, well, what are we thanking him for exactly? So I wanted to get your take on the idea that even on this national stage, there is a deferring or clearing the path for white men. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on, have you seen this kind of behavior show up in your own experience in the workplace or in other predominantly white spaces? You know, Rolinda, I had the same thought. I don't know what Susan Page was thanking Mike Pence for either. I found it to be confusing language to use with someone who was blatantly breaking the rules. 
I was disappointed that she, that this is the only tactic Paige was prepared to employ throughout the debate, especially after she realized that her strategy was ineffective. She persisted with it nonetheless, and I'm not sure if she was hoping to appeal to Pence's decency, but one thing is clear. Pence is no more principled than Trump. He's just more disciplined. And in case folks don't know, Susan Page, the debate moderator who allowed Pence to break all of the predetermined debate rules on every answer, even though he and his campaign agreed to these rules prior to the debate, she held a fundraiser in 2018 for Pence's protege, Seema Verma. Verma runs the Medicare and Medicaid programs for the Trump administration. This finding should have been a disqualification. This finding should have disqualified Paige immediately from being the debate's moderator. And yet here we are. To your questions about if this has been my experience with white women in the workplace, absolutely. No question. History and the 2016 election demonstrate that for most white women, their race comes before their gender. Their voting practices tell us that they vote with a party that hates women as a matter of policy. This is consistent with white women being accomplices in white supremacy, as their fathers, husbands, sons are the engineers. We've all been in a meeting where an uninformed white man has given too much airtime and space without interruption. And this is exactly what Susan Page did for Mike Pence. White women continue to fail to hold white men accountable for their actions and fail to use their institutional power and privilege to do so. You know, pacifying the patriarchy is not how we are going to win equal pay, equal rights, or equal protection under the law. Patriarchy kills, and that's not a hyperbole. Look at the violence against trans folks, um, this country's obsession with guns the violence against women and domestic abuse, um, women's lack of autonomy over our reproductive health. In 2016, when 53% of white women voted for Trump and therefore chose their race over solidarity with their gender, they thought that, you know, only the rest of us would suffer the consequences of a Trump presidency because history told them that their whiteness would shield them. But that hasn't been the case because unless that whiteness was coupled with wealth, you haven't been immune to the trail of destruction this administration has left behind. When Kamala extended her comments of, I'm speaking, it was a word delivered to my spirit. I, when she said I'm speaking, It resonated so deeply with me because I am aware of the number of times where I have had to do that in settings just to fight, to be heard, to be seen, um, having people uh, talk over me, um, co-opting ideas that I have created. Um, How did you hearing I'm speaking uh, validate your own experience? (laughs) You know, it's funny. I was clapping and cheering at the TV when Kamala said, I'm speaking. 
it was so reminiscent of Congresswoman Maxine Waters' catchphrase, reclaiming my time, which also makes me smile. And it is such a powerful way to take control and shift the power dynamic when you're being disrespected in a conversation. The gender dynamics of interruption and the power to interrupt are always on display when you're a black woman. Every black woman knows what it's like to be interrupted by an ill-informed mansplainer like Mike Pence. But again, the lack of a competent moderator made Kamala look like the aggressor when she advocated for equal speaking time. This is just one of the ways the moderator was able to uphold white supremacy on that debate stage. It was so reaffirming, though, and validating to hear Kamala say in front of millions of people what I want to say in every meeting ever when I'm interrupted. I am speaking. In other words, shut up. (laughs) Okay, okay, let's get to it. The facial expressions of a black woman. Yes, so deeply rooted in our cultural identity. I know that uh, facial expressions, you know, I'm thinking about my own mother and the facial expressions and the various facial expressions that we have to use uh, to express our thoughts, emotions, but also shows the authenticity of uh, black womanhood um resonating with our community so why did you think it was important for Kamala to show her authentic self um, especially when there are so many that try to insinuate that she's not really black or uh, not black enough and that's not coming from our community it's really coming externally in an attempt to try to discredit her so I just wanted to get a sense of of how important it was because I know that uh, those are facial expressions that uh, as black mothers we make to our own children and so I wanted to get your take on it I can completely relate to Kamala's facial expressions being on 1000 that whole debate Because if you know me, (laughs) you know my face cannot hide my emotions. Um, Respectability tells us, you know, that we have to be stoic. Um, But, and respectability also tells us that staying alive is more important than protecting one's own dignity. But I challenge that by posing the question, what is our quality of life without dignity? Unless you live in a few select cities in this country and you're a black woman navigating any leadership role um, inside or outside of corporate America, it is likely that you are one of only a few or maybe you're the only And maybe even you're the first in that position or job like Kamala. And the conundrum is, in this instance, that we are hyper-visible and invisible simultaneously. Constantly under the white gaze and at the same time overlooked for promotions, raises, and opportunities as we continue to only make 62 cents for every dollar a white man makes. This surveillance is supposed to elicit fear or compliance to, quote, act right. 
and illicit behaviors of professionalism that are rooted in white supremacy. And racist thinking has people believing that we wouldn't ordinarily display professionalism if not for that surveillance. This is what Patricia Hill Collins named the politics of containment. And Black women deserve to live their full lives, their best lives, their most authentic lives. And in order to do that, we will not be contained. It is important for Black women to show up as our authentic selves because shrinking and muting ourselves hasn't worked. And plainly speaking, it's killing us. Its toll is exacted in, on our mental health, our physical health, as well as the health of our relationships with loved ones. I don't know about you, Rolinda, but I do my best work when I can be myself. And it is up to those around me to catch up. I often hear sisters say, oh, no one wants to see all of me at work. Work isn't ready for, for all of me. Um, or my workplace, my colleagues aren't ready for who I am. But how do we even choose what parts of ourselves to silence, erase, or mute? Or what part of our lives do we decide to compartmentalize for 40 or more hours per week? If we're being honest, the ticket should actually read Harris-Biden 2020. But we know the reality of this country and how this country has shown itself. People aren't ready to have Black women lead. I mean, in 2016... We still had 53% of white women who couldn't show up for Hillary Clinton. And so I'm not convinced. Do you think this country is ready to be led by a black woman? Because obviously, as we know, Joe Biden, you know, who knows if he'll make it to a full four years. And so I do think that he was strategic in, in picking Kamala Harris. But I want to get your thoughts. Is America ready to be led by a black woman? To keep it 100 with you, Rolinda, neither Kamala nor Joe were my first or second choice. I was a Warren Democrat, and yet I fully support their campaign and a Biden-Harris administration. Hillary Clinton was wildly qualified to be president, and yet her narrative became the story of so many other women that are overqualified and simultaneously disliked or distrusted. And, and in Hillary's case, she was both. Even with her resume, she lost to a man that makes up words like kofifi and is incapable of speaking in complete sentences. We all witness the vitriol Hillary Clinton was subjected to then. And I know that this country is not yet ready for a black woman to lead. But I will repeat that it is not our job to convince people of what we already know to be true. That black women will, could, and should run this country. It's everyone else's job to catch up. We should persist whether the country is ready for us or not. If a black woman would lead this country, I'm afraid she would be subjected to the same treatment that the Obamas endured throughout their eight years in the White House. Um, 
you know, the Obamas spent so much of their time and energy defending their own humanity. Barack defended his right to even be president, having to prove that he was, in fact, a United States citizen. The first lady was incessantly tone and hair police, body shamed, um, even labeled scandalous when she wore that black sleeveless dress. It's also also you know, worth remembering that Mitch McConnell all but shut down the Senate, unwilling to allow Obama to confirm a uh, Supreme Court justice and leaving hundreds of judge vacancies open for the Trump administration to consequently fill. Unless the House and Senate are controlled by Democrats when a black woman finally does lead this country, I presage that we will have a replay of the Obama presidency. And I realize I'm going on about politics and it was not my intention to sound like I'm stumping for a candidate, but I cannot overstate the importance for all of us to use our voice and vote in this election. So what happens after November 3rd? We see the games, the tactics, and we know that after November 3rd, even if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are elected, we know that we are still in the fight for our lives, the greatest fight for our lives and for the future of our children, future generations. How do we prepare for this fight for justice and liberation? How do we do it? Because it's a daunting task and every day is mired in a story or controversy or something that we can't believe could happen and then it happens. So what happens after November 3rd? And are we ready? You know, I have my own anxieties about what happens after November 3rd, especially because Trump has not publicly agreed to a peaceful transition of power if he loses the upcoming election. And I I ask myself, you know, can we transform the institutions that govern us? And then I realized that it's not really an issue of can we? We must. Giants like John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, R.B.G. are passing away and passing us the baton. What will we do with it? Will we run with it? Will we play it safe? We must continue to honor their legacies of being change makers by continuing to make our own change. And we're living in a revolution. We must focus on the democracy and country that we deserve. And in order to build that democracy in that country, we must boldly reimagine these institutions no longer being tools of the oppressor. We do ourselves a disservice if we continue to treat our democracy and our government as permanent, as sacred, as um, incapable of being altered. As citizens, we have agency. As people, we have the power. We have the right and the responsibility to alter these American institutions that are no longer serving us. 
And to be quite honest, they've never served us. These institutions were created by white landowning men. They were not divine by God. We have the power to change them. And we owe it to ourselves and future generations to intentionally focus on transforming these institutions and holding our elected officials accountable to the idea of what real transformation looks like. This election is about our survival and the preservation of our democracy. I, I really, really wish that it wasn't like this. And I recognize that this only serves to highlight the brokenness of our government, that this is even the case. But now is not the time for cynicism or hopelessness. We must persist and continue to show up and show out. No matter how scared we are right now, we have the opportunity to convert this fear into energy, into action, into organization. After November 3rd, we need to be ready to organize. But preemptively, we can all vote. It is going to take all of us and it is going to take all of us to do more than what we are already doing. But, and even in in the face of all of this exhaustion that we feel. And let's be clear, this exhaustion is a direct result of the authoritarianism being played out by this administration. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day. I remember growing up and this was known as Columbus Day. And I think we had the day off from school and leading up to this moment, there were a ton of conversations around what Columbus discovered and how he was so wonderful and he was this hero. And then you get older and then you have to do so much unlearning and relearning, decolonizing our minds and really finding out more and more about Columbus and his vile acts against humanity and indigenous people. So today is Indigenous Peoples Day, an opportunity for us to really think about how we decolonize what we've learned and what we've accepted as truth and an opportunity to think about and question whose history is being told and what narratives are being included or excluded from not only the books that we read, but our streams of consciousness. Whose voice do we defer to? Whose story do we choose to honor, celebrate, or affirm? And so on this Indigenous Peoples Day, I want to first begin by acknowledging the land that we live on, that here for me and for all of us was stewarded and cared for by Indigenous people who I, growing up, never heard their stories and they were never acknowledged. 
And so now as an adult, we can choose to tell new stories that seek to not defer to a dominant narrative or a dominant voice, but a voice of those who were responsible for the growth of this nation, but also they were here before the discoverer that I learned about and that they're still here. And indigenous people deserve our respect, attention, and affirmation. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Knowledge is power. Go unlearn, relearn, and let's tell some new stories that are full of truth. All right, y'all, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button on Apple, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Leave me a review. I want to know what you're thinking. Be sure to support the podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon, patreon.com backslash Relinda. Give me a follow on Instagram or Twitter at Relinda Speaks. Mail-in ballots are out. I got mine. So if you're in a state with mail-in ballots, get that ballot in. This election is far too important. Wear a mask. Go vote. Protect Black women. Amplify voices that are in the margins. And keep growing and transforming yourself. The journey isn't linear, but... We must keep pushing forward. Take care. Be well. I'll see you next time. Bye.